welcome back, everybody, to another episode of You Make Me Sick, the podcast that was initially dedicated uh, to microorganisms uh, and the illnesses that they cause, but recently at work, a good friend of mine, Suzanne, mentioned to me that uh, there are other things that make us sick. So today's podcast, we're going to talk about one of those things. Uh, she actually kind of requested this topic, uh, and uh, we'll get to uh, in a little bit later in the episode an uh, interesting little story that she had mentioned uh, related to this topic. So as the title states, we're going to be talking about uh, acute radiation syndrome. Uh, definitely not caused by a microorganism, but definitely makes you very, very sick. So that's something we'll touch on uh bunch of different aspects to talk about with it. Uh, I'm going to get into radiation, exactly what it is, uh, what causes it, how much radiation will actually make you sick, uh, you know, all the uh, signs, symptoms, uh, treatments, fun stuff like that. So uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we start, uh, as always, we'll take a step uh, towards the whole monkeypox situation going on, the epidemic. Still considered uh, a health emergency by the WHO. They actually just met at the end of October just to discuss. I think they meet uh, every two months, every three months to kind of discuss the state of this uh, epidemic. As of right now, they still consider it uh, a world health emergency. Uh, And it's uh, mostly in countries right now. uh, I don't even say countries, but areas or just uh, populations uh, with people who are highly affected with HIV. That's where they're seeing a lot of the cases happen and a lot of these illnesses still take place. So uh, that being said, it has kind of uh, peaked and it is definitely on the downswing. Here in the U.S., there are currently 28,492 cases to date. Uh, There have been eight deaths. Worldwide, there's about 77,573 cases. So not a huge increase from about a month ago when I did my last episode. Uh, There was a study that actually just came out too that kind of highlighted uh, hospitalizations with monkeypox. Uh, this was a, a meta study, so it kind of went through uh, a whole bunch of different studies, kind of looked at the st- statistics from those, and then uh, extrapolated uh, the data from that. Uh, this included seven hundred, sorry, seven thousand five hundred and fifty-three reported cases of monkeypox. Uh, among those, there were five hundred and fifty-five hospitalizations. So it suggests there's about a 14.1% hospitalization rate for monkeypox. Uh, These studies did range, though, from 1950 just until right now, 2022. Uh, And all of the, uh, throughout the studies, uh, there were only 15 deaths that were recorded, and those deaths were all in Africa. So, uh, like I said, that's a long time. That's over 70 years of data to kind of pile through, uh, but with only 15 recorded deaths. Granted, this is kind of a small sample size, uh, considering, you know, as I said, there are 77,000 cases right now worldwide, and this only covered, uh, you know, 7,500, so about 10% of that. Um, the fact that it also covered 70 years, and it didn't really specify, at least I couldn't see uh, the different strains. But uh, with this study, it also found the medium age of cases was 35 years old, and about 98% of the cases, uh, the patients were all male. So... Things that we're still seeing, obviously, right now uh, with this recent epidemic, uh, as far as age-wise and gender-related. But uh, as far as the monkeypox things goes, I'll keep you updated once in a while. But uh, it is, you know, still a worldwide health emergency, but definitely not uh, as bad as it was, you know, even a couple months ago. So uh, I'll also mention there was also a a recent uh, brain-eating amoeba death. So uh, Enfaliri, the the amoeba that causes... uh, 
the kind of a brain deaths, uh, as I talked about in my last, in my last episode, no, two episodes ago. Uh, this happened in Las Vegas, uh, yeah, back in October, so a little less than a month ago, and it was a teenage male who was actually swimming in Lake Mead. Uh, been kind of record-breaking drought uh, on the West Coast, and it's really affected that area. I mean, Las Vegas is a desert anyway, uh, but Lake Mead used to be a pretty sizable lake, and the waters receded so much. So definitely, you know, perfect breeding ground uh, for those amoebas, warm water. Um, it's probably, it's more shallow now. They're actually finding dead bodies in there too, which are probably mob-related, but uh, I, I won't speculate on that. So anyway, uh, let's get to uh, acute radiation syndrome. So as I mentioned before, I want to thank Suzanne uh, just for recommending this, uh, you know, kind of bringing to my attention that uh, even though, you know, bacteria and fungus and viruses all cause illness there are definitely other things in this world that'll make you sick so uh we'll kind of talk about uh, acute radiation syndrome and exactly what uh, what is radiation so um don't be surprised too if i say acute radiation sickness once or twice i'm trying not to because there is a difference between a, a radiation sickness and a radiation syndrome uh and i'll probably often refer to it just as ars just to kind of, you know, just for brevity. Um, so with ARS, so if you have prolonged or significant exposure to ionizing radiation, uh, this is actually what results uh, in acute radiation syndrome. So it's a fairly broad term, uh, and it kind of, uh, it reflects signs and symptoms that uh, cause severe damage to specific organ systems. And I'll actually talk about, there's kind of three different organ systems that are really affected. And I'll get into why and how these are affected as well. Uh, and this acute radiation syndrome, you know, it can lead to death within hours or months after exposure. Uh, and it's also survivable, too, depending on how much radiation you had. So, you know, what is radiation, right? So radiation, you know, it's defined as the transmission or emission of energy through space or objects. When you have a prolonged or significant exposure to radi ionizing radiation, this is actually what causes that acute radiation syndrome. The acute radiation syndrome can also result from a direct exposure uh, or a contamination by radioactive materials. A direct exposure would be considered like a nuclear blast, while a contamination would be a result of tainted food or water or skin contact with some kind of what we call a nuclear material, something that uh, has become uh, radioactive. The acute radiation syndrome, it's also divided into three groups, and ex exposure is measured in grays or rads. I'll talk about this in just a minute, too. And there is a difference between when you're measuring radioactivity, the radioactivity of an object, and the absorbed radioactivity as far as the units that are used to discern how much radiation something has uh, with regard to its actual radiation that it gives off and how much has been absorbed. It's also radiation kind of divided into ionizing and non-ionizing. So nuclear materials, radioactive materials, give off ionizing radiation. And there are actually five types of ionizing radiation. Uh, these are alpha, beta, gamma. Gamma is what caused the Hulk to become the Hulk. Positron and X-ray. X-ray we're all familiar with. Uh, we've probably all had at least one in our lives. If you haven't, you're pretty lucky. Uh, but uh, those uh, of the three that are the most dangerous, it's the first three that I mentioned. So it's the alpha particles, the beta particles, and then the gamma. Uh, alpha particles are made up of two protons and two neutrons. 
It's easily blocked. These are pretty big, so they're pretty, <clears throat> excuse me, easily blocked by clothing. But they can be inhaled or ingested. Uh, once they're actually inhaled and they're on the surface of the alveoli in the lung, it's kind of little things that line the inners of the lungs. That's where your gases are exchanged. Or if they're inside your intestinal mucosa, so if you swallow it and they're in your stomach lining or your esophagus, it can cause cellular damage and that can result in cancers. Uh, an example of an alpha particle is actually radon gas. So if you've ever heard of, you know, people get radon gas poisoning. And I'll talk about radon gas a little bit more too. Just with regard to how much exposure we have and, uh, d you know, dangerous levels of it. It's something we're exposed to a lot. It's just naturally around us. Uh, houses have radon detectors, or at least they should if you have a basement. So that's something that, uh, you know, as far as radioactivity that's all around us is a good example. Beta particles are just made up of electrons, so much smaller. They have a higher penetrance rate because of this, and they can actually cause damage to the skin. So this can kind of get through your clothing and affect the epidermis. This also, obviously, if you know, it can be inhaled and ingested as well, just like the other particles. This would be something that's kind of the byproduct of a nuclear power plant or medical nuclear materials. Uh, I'll talk about uh, how we use uh, nuclear, or at least radioactive materials, a little bit in medicine as well, a little bit later on the podcast. But these are, you know, these are radioactive. They have to be handled like radioactive materials. And these are, you know, these electrons that are highly ionized can uh, be found in those materials as well and cause damage. And then gamma rays uh, have no mass. Uh, they're highly penetrant. So these can fly through just about anything. These are something that you'd usually see in the result of a nuclear detonation. Or, like I said, if you're Bruce Banner and you're in your lab and you're messing around, uh, can uh, cause the Hulk to be formed. I also want to say that the Fantastic Four, the Thing, I think the entire Fantastic Four were exposed to gamma rays in space. So, I don't think that anybody's ever come out of a gamma ray blast with superpowers, but I could be wrong. Uh, radiation. So when measuring radiation, it's uh, the amount of radiation exposure that we encounter, it's measured in a few different units. So like I said before, you can separate how much radiation something gives off and then how much radiation has been absorbed. So when measuring the radioactivity of a material, the typical units are a Bercarel or a curry or a pico curry. Uh, and that kind of measures, you know, if somebody has a Geiger counter, they're measuring the radioactivity of something. Uh, the millisievert, or the gray, and the rad measure the absorbed radioactivity. So when we're talking about acute radiation syndrome, we're going to end up talking about, we'll actually use the rad. Uh, the rad, it's, we'll talk about it today. It's actually discouraged now when describing exposure. Uh, typically, the millisievert is usually what's the... Uh, the preferred measurement, but most of the data that I looked at with regard to this still use the RAD. In the United States, anyway, we use the RAD. So I don't know if it's kind of like the metric system versus, you know, everything else. Uh, still a, not one worldwide uh, unit for measurement, but I think they're trying to get everybody to go to the millisievert. Anyway, that being said, um, so the RAD. So how much radiation will actually cause illness is kind of... Uh, what's going to determine how sick you get. So as far as RADs go, I'll kind of give a, a little breakdown right now of the amount of RADs and when you start to see kind of clinically observed changes in the body. So with 25 RADs, uh, which 
it sounds a kind of a low dose. And like I said, it, even after I, when I finish up going through this list, I'll go through another list just to compare how much radiation, you know, in a few day to day activities that we'll see. So at 25 rads, this is actually the lowest dose that causes clinically observed blood changes. Uh, this affects your bone marrow when it's that low, anything above that. And that's when you'll start to see some changes in your white blood cells and red blood cell counts. If you jump up to 200 rads, so almost a 10-fold 10, jump, this is where with a local dose, say you know, you're handling something radioactive or it touches your skin and it has a 200 rad dose, that's where you'll kind of have that onset of kind of an erythema or a burning almost or irritation of the epidermis uh, in humans. Um, this, and as I keep going up these steps, every step before that, will also come into consideration. So at that 200 rads, you're also going to experience observable blood changes as well. Uh, if you double that dose to 400 rads, this is where you start to see uh, people start to die. So there's something called a whole body LD50. The LD50 stands for lethal dose in 50% of people at 60 days. So the 400 rads, the whole body LD50, or a lethal dose in 50% of people after 60 days uh, is, the LD50 is 50%. I should probably state that a little bit better. So the whole body LD, and then there's a number that follows that, will be the percent of people after 60 days that it kills. So uh, for 400 rads, 50% of people are going to end up dying after 60 days. Uh, not to mention the other 50% are probably going to have... Um, burns and other issues within GI tract and blood changes. Uh, if you more than double that to a thousand or one kilorad, uh, the whole body lethal dose is 100% at 60 days. So these people eventually at, you know, 60 days, they might live for a while and I'll go through, you know, all the signs, symptoms, and then the actual, like I said, there are three different kind of parts of the syndrome. These people experience all of these and probably die after, you know, in between that one and 60 day point. Uh, at 10, so 10,000 or 10 kilorads, uh, there was actually an accident in, uh, I think it was Rhode Island at Wood River Junction where somebody was exposed to that much and obviously they died. Um, just as a side point, between four and eight kilorads, so 4,000 to 8,000 rads, uh, this is actually a radiotherapy dose that they use uh, for chemo, not chemotherapy, but they're using for radiation, usually along with chemotherapy to treat cancers. Uh, we'll discuss this as well. This is different though, because this is used uh, very precisely just on uh, you know, a group of cells or an area in the body to destroy the cells. And we'll talk about uh, how cells are destroyed from radiation as well. But it's so just kind of a, if you look at, you know, a thousand kilorads will kill you, you know, but four to eight, you know, I'm sorry, 1,000 rads or one kilorad, 4,000 to 8,000 rads or four to eight kilorads is using uh, radiation therapy. So it's interesting how we use something that was, you know, a whole body dose will, will completely kill you, but a small dose might save you. So, all right. So we've kind of run quickly through just the, you know, how many rads it takes to really get you sick. Uh, we'll talk about just kind of radiation in general. It's all around us. So obviously, you know, the sun shoots off radiation. There's radiation uh, coming up, like I said, from radon gas. But uh, we'll give a comparison right here just to show you how little there is actually in our surrounding environments compared to something if you have a direct exposure to radiation. So uh, 
the average person in the U.S. receives about 0.3 rads per year just from the natural radiation that's around us. So that includes sunlight, uh, that includes background doses, uh, that would include, you know, like I said, any kind of natural like, like radon gas exposure. This is a little bit different if you live at a higher altitude. So people who live in mountain areas, if you're in Colorado or you're New Mexico, um, I would assume, you know, anywhere where you're going to be up at a higher altitude, the atmosphere isn't as thick, so you're going to have more exposure. Uh, this is about 0.15 rads more per year than those living, you know, at or near sea level. Uh, if you go to the doctor and you have a chest cold and they want to get a chest x-ray, or if you break a bone and they want to get an x-ray of your arm, so an x-ray doesn't really put out much. It's 0.001 rad. Uh, if you get a CAT scan, that's going to jump up a bit, about 15 times at the 0.015 rads. Still not a lot. This is something, though, that uh, even today in medicine, our physicians will consider. You know, you take the Hippocratic Oath to cause no harm. Uh, and that includes even when you're thinking about radiation exposure. So a lot of times, if chest x-rays aren't necessary, they won't be ordered. Uh, if CT scans, if they don't think they're going to find anything viable from it, they won't order them. Uh, and a lot of this has to do, I mean, one, it's cost, but uh, the other thing is just radiation exposure. Like, you don't need to be making, you know, giving people more radiation than they need. So that's, uh, but still not a ton of exposure. Like I said, 0.015 rads in a CAT scan. If you were to take a coast-to-coast -coast trip uh, from the United States, that's, you're going to get about 0 0.003 rads of exposure just due to cosmic rays, so essentially sunlight. Uh, you're also, like I said, at a higher altitude, so it does affect you a little bit more. Uh, but the largest source of background radiation just comes from radon gas that's in our homes. From that, you're going to get about point, or 0 0.2 rads per year. So not a considerable amount. If it takes 25 rads in a, you know, one exposure to make you sick, that's why, you know, obviously you don't see people with acute radiation syndromes. I don't know, and I didn't look into, you know, if there have been any studies done as far as, uh, you know, cancer-causing radiation, if people in certain areas, I mean, obviously people who live in, you know, climates with more sunshine have more skin cancer. Australia's got one of the highest rates in the world, I think. And it's very sunny there most of the time. I mean, and that's just, you know, that's something obviously we know about now. But I don't know with exposure to these other types of radiation with radon, if there's certain areas that just have more exposure to it or not. Uh, so acute radiation syndrome. So exactly, you know, what causes it? So I told you, you know, the amount that causes it. Um, you know, how can we... and how normal day-to-day -day radiation isn't going to cause it. So exactly what kind of types of events or uh, what causes are there for acute radiation syndrome? So most cases these days are actually seen from industrial exposures. Uh, these are accidents at nuclear power plants or mishandling of nuclear materials. Um, you know, these occupational accidents, uh, some of them are categorized. So there's one category called inadvertent criticality. This is where you have uh, too much fissionable material in the right shape at the wrong time. So I'm, I'm not precisely sure what that means, if it's just that they're not able to uh, contain the radioactivity or the radioactive material correctly and it ends up escaping, you know, radiation leaks out, I'm not sure. Um, there's an irradiator accident, uh, incident. So if radiation happens, you can use radiation to kill bacteria. Uh, this is used, they'll do this for blood products. They'll actually irradiate blood cells. Uh, to kill bacteria. You can also do it just for, you know, sterilization of just about anything. 
but there are actually accidents uh, because uh, accidental exposure, I guess it can be more than like, there's 10 million curies that these, uh, these irradiators put out. So if you don't have correct protection from that, you could certainly be exposed. And then there's the uh, industrial accidents, like the Fukushima nuclear power plant a few years ago in Japan. Uh, that was a result of the loss of power. So there was a that earthquake and tsunami, subsequent tsunami that happened and knocked out power to the power plant. And they had, uh, I'm sure it was a reactor leak, but they did have a radiation leak. Um, there were a lot of people that were really freaked out about that. Uh, it's funny because I remember Elon Musk was talking about just the utility of nuclear power and how there's a big stigma with it. And people just, they don't, they'd rather look for these other sources of renewable energy and not nuclear power when nuclear is actually, it's, you know, relatively safe. It's incredibly clean and really efficient. And, you know, he was talking about how people are so fearful because of what happened at Fukushima. And he was talking about, he'd go over there right now and eat food that was grown there because there was so little radiation exposure around the surrounding area and it was more localized. Uh, anyway, there was obviously Chernobyl, Chernobyl. Chernobyl, give that with. Uh, in 1986, uh, that pretty much primarily involved plant workers and firefighters there. I know there's a huge documentary a couple of years ago uh, on HBO. I did not watch it. Um, I think my wife did. Uh, there was also Three Mile Island in 1979 that was in Pennsylvania that had a partial uh, reactor meltdown. Uh, all three of these uh, were actually graded, so there's a scale uh, that is called uh, the Let's see, let me see how I find it. It's the International Nuclear and Radiological Event Scale, the INES. And this was introduced in 1990 by the International Atomic Energy Agency. So this scale measures the, the magnitude of nuclear disasters. It's kind of, it's similar to the, the Richter scale for earthquakes. So each, it's a one to 10 scale and each magnitude is, is logarithmic. So it's 10 times worse than the prior. And all three of these incidents, or the three that I just mentioned, were all level five. Uh, it is, you know, where you have earthquakes are kind of objective. Like you can measure them uh, with seismographs. So you can have an actual number to put to it. These are more of a subjective measurement, and a lot of them are done after the fact, too, because they have to determine just the scope of the radioactivity, uh, what it affected, who it affected. So a little bit different than something like the Richter scale, but there is a scale to measure these nuclear incidents uh, and just how severe they were. Other possibilities of acute radiation syndrome are non-occupational accidents. One of these actually happened in Brazil in 1987. Uh, there was an abandoned medical therapy source, so I'm assuming there was, I don't know if it was an old hospital or warehouse, but they had cesium, which is a radioactive material, and it was just in a package. And it was found by a group of people, they cut it open, they had no idea what it was, uh, and this resulted in several deaths of a lot of these people, and there was exposure in the public as well, so I'm assuming it took a little while to actually figure out that this is radioactive, but uh, contaminated a fairly large area. And then, of course, there are if nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons, nuclear strikes. This can also cause acute radiation syndrome if they don't kill you immediately. Uh, but uh, nuclear weapons and also acts of terrorism. So these include an attack on a nuclear industrial facility, detonation of a small radioactive device, uh, detonation of a, a dirty bomb, which is a radioactive device that disperses material, uh, detonation of a standard nuclear weapon, so there's 
been a lot of headlines recently with the war in Ukraine, you know, related to this. Uh, Vladimir Putin not really coming out and saying that he would use nukes, but saying that he has a capability. Uh, and it's been, I think there was there was news that Russia may have been. Don't take my word for this because I'm kind of trying to remember the stories correct. That there was some had thought that Russia may try to say they may try to do a, a false flag narrative where they would detonate some kind of a nuclear bomb in or around the Ukraine and blame it on the Ukrainians so then they could go ahead and use their nuclear weapons. Kind of messy. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get to that. Uh, Russia does have the capability to do that. Uh, it should be mentioned, though, so in warfare, when we're talking about nuclear weapons, I think most people think, uh, you know, city-destroying bombs like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, but there are a couple of different types with warfare. So there are tactical and then there are strategical. Uh, strategical nuclear weapons are those giant, you know, city-destroying mushroom cloud bombs. Uh, those are ones only been used twice in history, hopefully never again. Just, just completely destroys a large number of people. Uh, and then there are tactical nuclear weapons. These cover a much smaller area. Uh, same principle, just uses a, it's just a smaller blast, but it's very effective, uh, or would be very effective at removing, if you have large numbers of tanks or artillery or uh, just large numbers of troops on the battlefield. Uh, but it would also cause, you know, acute radiation syndrome definitely uh, it would affect people if, if you weren't killed in the blast after the blast exposure to this and then Anybody in the surrounding area could also be affected from that. So with all those forms of uh, radiation exposure that can cause acute radiation syndrome, and I should mention, I think I mentioned this before too, um, that a radiation sickness from cancer treatments can happen, but it's not an acute radiation syndrome. Uh, this is usually kind of a self-limiting, non-fatal, uh, you're able to treat it supportively from cancer treatments. We don't see it a ton these days, but it does happen. Um, anyway, so for acute radiation syndrome, so there are actually, and this is kind of to the point that I just made before, that acute radiation sickness from, from cancer treatments, uh, there are requirements for it to be called an acute radiation syndrome. So the first one is that the radiation has to be a large dose. So, and this is actually greater than 70 rads. So when I was talking before about what will cause, you know, as little as 25 can start to cause physiological and, I guess, blood changes in humans. Uh, for acute radiation syndrome, you have to have at least 70 rads of exposure. Uh, the dose usually has to be external. Uh, it can be different. Uh, I mean, it's so internal radiation. There's also a cancer therapy called brachytherapy that I'll talk about, and this is where you actually place radioactive discs or wires or implants near cancer cells in somebody's body. That can actually cause uh, acute radiation syndrome in some people, um, different than uh, you know radiotherapy with using the direct you know using that you know four to eight kilorad dose. Uh, but this is extremely rare. I'll talk about brachytherapy a little bit uh, later on. Uh, criteria number three is the radiation has to be penetrating, so it has to be able to reach the internal organs. So if this is a superficial kind of uh, just affects the skin, then they're not considering it acute radiation syndrome. Uh, the entire body, or at least most of it, this is number four, 
must have received the dose. So like I said, it can't really just be, you know, an arm or a leg. It has to be a significant portion of the body that's actually received this dose of radiation. Um, what's interesting is most radiation injuries are actually pretty local. Uh, most involve the hands, uh, and these injuries rarely cause acute radiation syndrome. And then the fifth criteria, uh, the dose has to have been delivered in a short time, so usually a matter of minutes. I will talk about one case, uh, and this is the case that my friend Suzanne brought up to me, where uh, exposure was actually prolonged for a lot of these people, uh, and it wasn't over a, a matter of minutes. I don't know if they've ever, if this, you know, their case would truly be considered acute radiation syndrome. I think it would, just because of how it affected them, but uh, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, so, fractionated doses are usually used in radiation therapy, right? So this is kind of doses, you'll go back and go back and go back. Uh, and that's to kind of prevent some of this acute radiation syndrome. So these blasts, you know, a nuclear blast or just an exposure to a plant, something like that, they usually happen in a matter of minutes and not over a long period of time. So once you have this radiation dose, if it's enough to make you sick, why does it make us so sick? You know, we're exposed to it a lot in our day-to-day -day lives at low levels. What about these high doses? You know, what is it at the cellular level that uh, really causes the damage? So there are essentially two mechanisms uh, that are commonly called direct and indirect effects on these cells. So if radiation interacts with the atoms of the DNA molecule or uh, some other cellular component, uh, this is kind of a direct effect. It's directly affecting the DNA, the ability for your cell to replicate. It's going to actually, you know, affect the uh, ability for the cell to reproduce and survive. Um, if enough atoms are actually affected so that the chromosomes don't replicate properly, if there's alteration in the information carried by the DNA, the cell can actually just be destroyed by this direct interference. Uh, if the cell is exposed to radiation, uh, probably pretty low that it's actually going to affect uh, these DNA molecules. It's very small since these critical components make up such a small part of the cell. Uh, the larger part of the cells though can become more affected. So the human body pretty much made uh, you know of water. So as weird as that sounds. Therefore there's a higher probability this radiation is actually going to affect the water that makes up the cells. So when this happens it breaks down now water is made from hydrogen and oxygen, right, breaks down those bonds. Uh, when it breaks down those bonds, it can actually split it up. So you'll have, you know, hydrogens and hydroxyls, which are just one oxygen and one hydrogen molecule kind of floating around together. Sometimes you can, these guys recombine, they form water, they're completely, uh, you know, they're not dangerous, they're safe. But other times they'll recombine and they can form toxic substances like hydrogen peroxide. Uh, hydrogen peroxide extremely dangerous in the cell. Uh, it's one of these things that can cause a lot of damage to the inside of the cell and just cause destruction of the cell overall. Uh, this can cause, and this, like I said, our body is mostly water. Our cells have a lot of water in them. So when you have this radiation, this is where a lot of that destruction happens. Uh, not so much in those, you know, reproducing cells, but more of these cells are the part of the cell uh, that has all this water and can cause, you know, the, these toxic. Uh, byproducts of radiation splitting down the water molecules and then misforming. So one other aspect to talk about here too is the fact that there are certain systems in your body where you have cells that reproduce really quickly. Your body needs them to to survive. Uh, other cell systems, you know, other parts of the body, they're fully formed, maybe they're a little slower. When you have radiation that affects the cells of these 
body systems that are more fastly reproducing, that's where you start to see kind of the first effects of the radiation syndrome happen. Uh, lymphocytes, which are white blood cells uh, created in the bone marrow, and uh, blood, which is also created in the bone marrow, these are cells that are constantly regenerating. Uh, I think it's every 120 days you have a fresh supply of blood. Like that's how long it takes for your blood to completely, your blood cells to die and new ones to fully reform. So pretty quickly as far as how fast these cells, you know, regenerate and need to regrow. These are the most sensitive actually to radiation because of that. And that's why you'll start to see changes in the blood before other cell systems or other just uh, systems in the body. And then and I can imagine before about 25 rads can actually start to cause damage there. Uh, and uh, reproductive cells, gastrointestinal cells, they don't generate as quickly. You think about that? I think it takes, uh, for your GI lining, five days to a week for that epithelial lining to really kind of fully come back. So it, a little bit slower, you know, especially in those blood cells. So your GI tract is actually a reproductive system. They're less sensitive, but uh, they're kind of second in line as far as radiation and how it affects it. And then lastly, your nerve cells and muscle cells are the slowest to regenerate and rebuild. Uh, for anybody who's, you know, if you ever pull the muscle or uh, if you've had a hard workout, you know, it might take you a day or two for your body to recover and, and feel, you know, and it's also how we build muscle. You actually break down the muscle fibers and then they rebuild, uh, which is why if you're into weight training and you're trying to, you know, make gains, you know, they say not to do the same thing two days in a row because you're just going to keep tearing that same muscle and not let it regrow. Um, but that's a, you know, significance there is that these cells, because they're slower forming, slower growing, uh, and radiation, you know, with, when you have an acute radiation syndrome, um, time does matter. So the slower that something takes to grow, there's less of a chance for that having, uh, you know, being affected by radiation. Um, because the blood forming cells, you know, they're one of the most sensitive cells due to their rapid regeneration. Uh, these are the organs that you, like I said, you start to see affected first, really the bone marrow. Uh, and its ability to, to reproduce. And this becomes a huge issue uh, when dealing with infection and can even, you know, hemorrhage. Um, now that's what will kind of bring us to the next portion here is, you know, with acute radiation syndrome, uh, what are the signs and what are the symptoms of acute radiation syndrome? So uh, each system, you know, as I went through, kind of requires a different dose of radiation before you'll manifest these syndromes. Uh, the timing is also kind of subdivided. So once you've had an exposure, uh, there's a, a prodrome, which is a, you know, medical speak for early signs and symptoms uh, of kind of latent and manifest phases. So you'll have, you know, illness, feel better, and then get worse. So some of the early symptoms are actually nausea, vomiting, headache, diarrhea. Uh, these symptoms usually start to happen minutes to days after you're exposed. They can last for minutes or up to days uh, and then come and go. Uh, but usually after these initial symptoms, a person kind of looks and feels healthy for a good period of time. Or I didn't say a good period of time, but a period of time. Uh, and then they become sick again. And then they'll have variable symptoms after that and variable severity. A lot of this depends on the dose of radiation. Um, something I, I should have mentioned earlier. So when speaking about radiation and exposure, uh, there's... There's the dose, there's the timing, and the shielding. Those are three things when talking about exposure. Uh, if you've been shielded well from a radioactive you know, exposure, 
uh, less likely you're going to get sick if you're, you know, the less time you spend around it and the lower dose. So depending on those three criteria um, will also affect just kind of how severe this uh, acute radiation syndrome is. But when those symptoms come back, um, those are kind of loss of appetite, fatigue, fever, again with the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, uh, and they can even have seizures and coma with this depending on how severe the exposure was. Uh, the serious ill stage, uh, and these are people who had big exposures. This can last for a few hours, up to uh, several months, depending on, on the exposure from it. People who get a high radiation dose can also have skin damage. So we kind of talked about it, about 400 rads, you'll start to see a little bit of redness and erythema, and as it goes up after that, you start to see more of these kind of radiation burns. Uh, these can start to show within a few hours, uh, but it may be delayed for several days, depending on the type of exposure. These uh, include swelling and itching, redness of the skin, kind of like a bad sunburn, or it could be more severe uh, or have caused blistering and ulcers, uh, kind of like a you know second degree burn where the epidermis is actually damaged. Skin might heal for a little bit, and then you'll kind of have a return of the swelling and itching and redness days or weeks later, just because that radiation sticks around and continues to cause damage. People can completely heal from skin damage. Uh, it usually takes like several weeks up to a few years though. And the time for the skin to heal also depends, like again, uh, it's on the, the dosage uh, and how much of uh, the body was affected by the radiation. Uh, you can also experience hair loss. People will see this with cancer treatments. Although I, I need to look, I'm not sure. See, one nursing, uh, one part, one field of one, Actually, one specialty in nursing that I've never done is oncology. So I've done a lot of other ones, but uh, it's something that I still, and I'm still not 100% if it's the chemo and the radiation that causes hair loss, if it's just the radiation that causes hair loss, or if it's both. I'll have to have somebody who knows more email me and tell me. I'm just not sure. Or I could research it. Anyway, hair can grow back, but it takes several weeks. So um, skin effects, usually more likely to exposure, excuse me, occur with exposure to low, uh, low energy gamma or x-ray or beta radiation. So as I stated before, those alpha particles are pretty big. And if you're wearing clothing, uh, they will, they will block that. So if you're not though, these other, uh, other rays, other electrons, the x-ray beta and gamma can actually penetrate. Um, the dose required for bad burns is relatively high though. So for blistering, you're gonna need about a 1200 rad dose. So depending on how much of your body was exposed to this 1200 rad dose, you're probably gonna die anyway. If it's localized, obviously, you know, that's less of a chance of, of death, but you can still have this burn to it. I guess that hair loss and other skin effects, usually about 500 rads is when you start to see that. So still a relatively high dose. Um, sterility can definitely, that's a, that happens. It uh, can be permanent in males, depending on how much you get. Uh, in females, it's almost always permanent, but you need a higher dose. Uh, I'm assuming, and this is once again, just because of, you think about distance uh, and shielding, you know, for women, they have their, their ovaries are much better protected uh, than a man's, man's testes, which is kind of, you know, hanging out with a thin layer of skin. So, uh, Kind of just another example of how even kind of, uh, you know, shielding and distance and all that stuff affects how radiation affects us. Uh, you can get cataracts on your eyes. 
kind of clouding of the lens. That can happen at about 200 rads, so definitely get eye damage with it. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of different parts of the body that can be affected, and these are just some of the signs of symptoms. So when you have a really bad acute radiation syndrome, uh, they're categorized pretty much uh, by the severity of illness, and that's usually by systems. So there's like three different, or there are three different uh, categories of acute radiation syndrome. Uh, the first one is the hemopoietic or bone marrow syndrome. So Full syndrome for this is usually about a thousand rads, but mild symptoms, like I said, you can start seeing blood changes around 30 rads, so I guess 25 rads. Uh, survival rate obviously decreases with the amount of radiation dose, and the primary cause of death for this is actually, it's, like I said, it's the bone marrow that creates the blood cells in your body, so white and red blood cells. Without your white blood cells, you're not able to protect yourself from illness, so a lot of these people die from infection, and it can also cause changes in the red blood cells and cause hemorrhage as well. So that's usually the, the primary cause of death in this uh, hemopoietic or bone marrow syndrome. Uh, when you get a little bit uh, higher of a dose, you get this gastrointestinal syndrome. So the full syndrome, it usually happens at a dose of greater than 1,000 rads. Uh, some symptoms can occur as low as 600, though. And survival is extremely low with this. You know, like I said before, if you get a you know thousand rad exposure, then it's a hundred percent lethality dose at sixty days. Uh, this is where you're going to have because you're also going to have your changes to your bone marrow and your you know, all your blood, and then you're going to have destructive and just irreparable damage just to your gastrointestinal lining. Uh, this will cause dehydration, electrolyte imbalances, coupled on top of that with the infection you're going to get just from having no immune system. You usually see death in about two weeks with this one. Uh, the third one is a cardiovascular and central nervous system, central nervous system syndrome. Ugh, say that one five times fast. Uh, the full syndrome, usually a dose greater than 5,000 rads. Uh, some symptoms can start as low as 2,000 rads. You will be dead in three days. So this one's really bad. Death is... Uh, According to the research I found, it's due to the collapse of your circulatory system, <coughs> excuse me, circulatory system, and uh, also just uh, intracranial pressure from increased uh, fluid content or edema on the brain causes like a, a vasculitis and a meningitis. I, I can't imagine it's a pleasant death. So, so how the hell do we treat this? So it's there's really a lot of supportive care for this. Uh, what's important is to kind of figure out, you know, patient specific. Uh, the amount of radiation, their location to it, like where it took place, like not only on the body, but just the, their proximity to it. So the three things I kind of talked about with the, uh, the dose, the shielding, and the timing of it, uh, just to figure out severity of it. Uh, you want to kind of record any kind of patient symptoms when they come in to see what they had, uh, nausea, vomiting. I guess vomiting is one of the earliest signs of radiation exposure. Uh, for you know providers you obviously you need to be protected so uh, a lot of uh, protective wear I'm not even sure like how so each hospital kind of has their own way of dealing with radioactive exposures Homeland Security and the CDC also have guidelines for it I have no idea um, caring for somebody if they had radiation exposure exactly what you would kind of need I mean obviously you're gonna spend as little time around them as possible but I don't know as far as uh, what kind of protective, as far as like PPE you would wear. 
you want to look for kind of any, any kind of blast injuries, any kind of burns, treat those. Any kind of surgeries, you want to get them done as quickly as possible because if there is, uh, you know, damage to their uh, blood and bone marrow, uh, you want to make sure that you're you're limiting the amount of time this person needs that they're going to be subject to infection. So you know, obviously surgery, you're cutting in to the skin, removing things, are going to be a higher risk for infection after that. Uh, antibiotics, obviously, uh, really high priority, especially for the, uh, you know, these hemopoietic uh, syndrome patients. You're going to want to check your blood counts uh, every 6 to 12 hours just to also kind of monitor uh, your white blood cell count and red blood cell count. Uh, as far as, you know, treatments go, there's, you know, like I said, it's mostly supportive. IV fluids, antibiotics, blood products. Uh, I guess there have been, you know bone marrow there have been a couple of bone marrow transplants i couldn't really find much information on it so i'm guessing it's not very effective uh once you've you know had that level of radiation uh but really supportive care treating burns uh and hopefully depend hopefully a person you know doesn't have such a you know aggressive exposure that they can actually kind of come back from this you can also so i guess it's also important uh, to remove uh any kind of clothing that somebody was wearing. I guess it, you can decrease the exposure by about 80% uh, for people who are treating these people just by getting rid of contaminated clothing and throwing those out too. Uh, surgery, like I said, needs to be done quickly. Uh, let's see if there's anything else in here. I mean, like I said, mostly supportive care, which is kind of, you know, there's no real cure for it. This isn't something that, you know, we can treat. Like I said, I mean, you'll use antibiotics just because your body's not going to have much of a defense system, but it's not like a microbe you can kill. Uh, thyroid cancer, I guess, is also a priority too. So women, uh, pregnant women and children are actually given potassium iodide to protect the thyroid. The thyroid is very efficient at taking up radiation, so you can actually give them potassium iodine to help protect it. Uh, any mothers who are breastfeeding should stop. Uh, other than that, you know, pain control, obviously, uh, antiemetics to stop people from puking. So uh, I guess there have also been a couple of cases where they've looked at using chelating agents. So a chelating agent, uh, it's often used in heavy metal exposures. They're actually, it's a, it's a type of, it's a medication, I should say, it's a, it's a binding medication, I said. So you give it to bind uh, heavy metals or whatever you're trying to pull out of the, the blood or the body and then the body will excrete it naturally. I guess it's tried, let's see. I guess nuclear specialists will have to be consulted if considering using cheating agents. So I guess it's been used, but I'm not sure exactly the efficacy of it. Uh, as I mentioned before, US Homeland Security and the CDC all have recommendations and guidelines for these radiation exposures. If you're curious, you can go there. So what about treatments in medicine? So. Radioactive materials have been used for almost since the beginning uh, of the discovery to actually treat cancers. They were found to actually treat cancer pretty effectively to begin with, but they were also killing people too. So it wasn't until it was really properly harnessed uh, that it's become a more effective treatment. Uh, nuclear medicine is a, it's a field of diagnostic imaging. And this is where radioactive material is actually, you can place it inside the body, typically used for, so with a CAT scan, with an MRI, you're looking at anatomical, uh, you know, images of the body. With nuclear medicine, you can look at physiological changes as they happen using these radioactive uh, isotopes. 
So often clinicians will at the same time do a nuclear med, med study and do a CAT scan or an MRI. So you kind of get the whole picture. You can see the physiological or the, you know, biochemical changes happening in the body as well as the anatomical area where it's happening. So it kind of helps to pinpoint things. You can look for bleeds. Uh, there are uh, certain breathing tests. You can look at the lungs really well. Uh, I'm pretty sure they've done nuclear medicine imaging and uh, MRIs, brain MRIs, to actually just kind of figure out what parts of the brain work or, uh, or when you're thinking, when you're just different brain activities. So nuclear medicine, been around for a while now, uh, really kind of unique uh, in, in the imaging world, pretty cool, but does can, it does have radioactive material, so it has to be handled like radioactive material. Uh, not enough to make anybody sick, but it can still be, like I said, there are there have been cases where there are exposures to radioactivity from uh, either mishandled or uh, leaked uh, medical supplies. Cancer treatments, uh, touched on earlier a little bit with radiation therapy, uh, typically 4 to 8,000 rads that precisely aim it at cancer cells or tumors. Uh, I think there's something called a, it was a gamma knife, which is a sweet name. Uh, for a medical tool, and you just kind of, you find out what those cancer cells are and, and zap it. Uh, you do it uh, a number of different times, usually, and it destroys the, the DNA in those cancer cells. Uh, obviously, they can't grow back without harming uh, many of the cells, the healthy cells around it. Brachytherapy, which I kind of talked about, uh, these are the implants, radioactive implants that kind of go next to cancer cells. Uh, with brachytherapy, people who do have that, like they have to kind of isolate too. You can't really be around other people because you do, you are emitting radioactivity. You're going to read and you know, all your bodily fluids are going to have it. So you have to have special disposal of, uh, you know, all your waste products, uh, like your clothes, all that stuff. Uh, if you do have somebody who's, you know, getting brachytherapy, I think limited, they recommend spending a limited amount of time around them uh, until they have that implant out. Obviously, uh, x-rays, CAT scans, PET scans, these all use radiation. Uh, like I said, pretty low doses. Uh, they're not going to make you sick unless you spend your whole life in a you know, CAT scan machine. Um, so, acute radiation syndrome, I think we covered pretty well the, you know, the causes of it, uh, how it happens, what it does in the cell, the symptoms. So I kind of want to talk about this case that my friend Suzanne brought up. So when she first mentioned, you know, radiation sickness and how it's uh, a radiation syndrome and how it's a little bit different than uh, bacteria or a virus but still makes you sick, the case that she brought up to me was the radium girls. So this is a case that took place uh, back in the 1920s into the 1930s, uh, and it involved a group of women who worked at... Uh, so there, Two big cases are the two, you know, most famous cases were at a couple of different watchmaking companies. Um, before I get into this, so they are called the Radium Girls. Radium, obviously, radioactive. I want to talk a little bit about radium, uh, just because it'll be, you know, it's kind of important when discussing exactly, you know, the exposure that these women had. So, the, uh, so radium. Uh, radium comes from the Latin word for ray, uh, because the radiation that was emitted from it, it's about three million times greater than that emitted from, from uranium. So, Radium comes from uranium after uranium uh, is actually started to decay. This is where you get kind of trace amounts of radium, but it's far more radioactive, obviously, three million more times than the uranium atom. Uh, radium, it's, there's about one part per trillion in the Earth's crust, so it's not super abundant. 
there are a lot of known isotopes, or I shouldn't a lot, several known isotopes of radium, and they all have different half-lives too. Um, this is important because the half-life will obviously, you know, something that the half-life will be related to how long something can give radiation off. Uh, radium-226, which is the you know type of radiation or type of radium that we're going to talk about that was used uh, in this next case, has a half-life of about 1,600 years. So uh, radium-226 uh, will you know remain radioactive for a very long time. Uh, radium was actually discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie. Uh, they were Polish and French chemists. Uh, they discovered radium in 1898. Uh, by 1902, uh, Marie Curie and André de Bierne, de, de Bierne, uh, they were actually able to purify radium uh, by electrolysis. Uh, what is noteworthy, uh, you know, Marie Curie, she actually was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in 1903 for her discovery of radium. Uh, and she was actually won another, a second uh, Nobel Prize to win, uh, sorry, she won a second Nobel Prize in 1911 as well. So a uh, very, very bright woman, um, bright chemist. And as I mentioned before, you can actually, the, the curry or the uh, pico curry are measurements of radiation. Funny side note is that her, uh, so Marie and Puri, Pierre carries their lab notebooks that they used when working with radium, just to kind of give an example of how radioactive this stuff is. They're still too dangerous to be handled today because of the amount of radioactivity that their notebooks give off. So, uh, you know, radiation exposure, it's, it's they were around it a lot. So, uh, anyway, so around the onset of World War I, uh, there were several factories that were established across the U.S. These were to produce watches uh, and military dials, and they actually used a... Uh, material with, I think it was a little phosphorus with radium mixed into it because it glows in the dark. So something would be very, very effective, uh, especially if you were, you know, in warfare, uh, somewhere in the dark. So these were established. Uh, there was one called the Radium Dial Corporation, and then there was a U.S. Radium Corporation. These were the biggest ones in the U.S., uh, very prolific. Uh, in total, these uh, plants, they employed about 4,000 workers uh, across the U.S. and Canada. And a lot of these uh, employees were hired to paint watch faces with radium. All had to be done by hand. The U.S. Radium Corporation, they hired about 70 women to do this. Uh, and a lot of these tasks, like I said, not only handling the, you know, painting the watches, but handling, a ra handling the radium as well. Uh, at the U.S. Radium Corporation, uh, these painters, they had to mix their own paint in a small crucible. And then they actually use very small camel hair brushes to apply the paint to these glowing dials. So if you think about how tedious that is, uh, the rate of pay at that point in time for painting, if you were able to do 250 dials a day, you got like a penny and a half per dial. So it's the equivalent of making about uh, about three cents per dial in, uh, in 2021. So didn't get paid very much to do this. Um, the brushes, though, they would lose their shape after a few strokes. So... Uh, the United States Radium Corporation, the supervisors, encouraged their workers to point the brushes with their lips. So they had a technique called lip, dip, and paint. Or to use their tongues to keep the uh, tip sharp. So, of course, nobody's going to tell these women. And at this time, you know, people knew that radium was radioactive and that it could cause harm. Nobody bothered to tell these workers. Nobody cared about factory workers, uh, you know, going back for a very long time. Uh, 
But these girls didn't know that. They thought it was just kind of a neat invention. Look, it glows in the dark. So a lot of these girls, a lot of the radium girls, would actually paint their nails. They'd paint their teeth. They'd paint their faces. Uh, they'd kind of run around, uh, kind of glowing in the dark. Uh, the radium dust that they were exposed to daily actually made their clothes glow. It would get in their hair and make their hair glow. And it kind of made their skin glow as well. Uh, they were also known as ghost girls, was another nickname that they were given to because of the kind of just the, the freaky glowingness of their skin. Uh, and a lot of the women, you know, they thought, like I said, it was pretty unique. This is, you know, neat and interesting. So a lot of them would wear their best dresses on the jobs and then would go dancing afterwards uh, just to be the, you know, the belle of the ball with their shiny gown and their, their glowing teeth. But uh, a lot of the workers became sick. Um, We'll kind of talk, I'll, I'll go through a little progression in a little bit, you know, but by 1927, about 50 of them had already died. Uh, and the worst part is, like I said, the owners and the scientists who use radium, uh, they knew the effects of radium. Uh, they avoided it. Like the scientists would actually use uh, lead screens and masks and tongs at the same plants where these women were using it to, to paint dials and, and lick their, you know, lick their lips after using their brushes. There was even literature that had been distributed uh, by the corporation to the medical community, kind of describing the serious and uh, injurious effects of radium. So complete negligence on their part. They didn't care. You know, it's all about profit. It's, you know, it still is today. But uh, in spite of this, you know, a, a lot of people kept getting sick and kept dying. Uh, in 1925, uh, the company's chief chemist, Dr. Edwin Lehman, actually died as well. Uh, and this would kind of help uh, these radium girls further down the road when they actually did mount uh, a court case against them. So it took a few years, but you started to see more of these girls show up. A lot of it first, at first, were going to their dentists with dental pain. Uh, they had loose teeth. They'd get kind of lesions and ulcers. They'd pull teeth, and they wouldn't heal. And then some of the women began to develop anemia, a lot of bone fractures, and then a lot of them started to kind of get necrosis of the jaw, so kind of just cell death of the jaw. And they, they called it, they it was a condition that now it's known as radium jaw, uh, just from this, the circumstances of these women who were perpetually putting radioactive materials into their mouth. There was also uh, episodes of sterility and suppression of menstruation among these women. Uh, so this started to kind of mount, and then in, uh, let's see, what was the year? So Harrison Martland was a county physician in Newark, New Jersey. So this, the United States Radium Corporation was based in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, Radium Dial Corporation was based in Illinois. I'll talk about them in, in just a second. Kind of the same thing was happening there as well. Um, so after you had, uh, you know, in 1923, you had your first dial painter die, uh, but she was one of the ones, her jaw fell away from her skull. In 1924, 50 of the women who had worked at the plant were ill, and about a dozen had died. I mentioned in 1925, uh, their chief chemist died. Uh, so all this stuff was happening, and the United States Radium Corporation was still trying to kind of pull the sheets over it. They had uh, physicians and other you know, practitioners who would actually kind of, who were also just turning a blind eye to this. They knew what was going on, and they didn't want to mention anything. They weren't saying anything. They tried to discredit a lot of these women. Uh, syphilis, 
Uh, if you haven't, I have a podcast on syphilis. It's great. You should listen to it. Uh, but syphilis was used as kind of a scapegoat, saying that a lot of these women were, uh, you know, irreputable, and syphilis was actually causing the deaths. Uh, they were also trying to blame x-rays for these women. They would go uh, to the doctor and get x-rays, saying the x-rays are what was contributing to it. All the while, while well, they knew that the actual cause was the radium that they were using. So, incredibly negligent. Uh, in Illinois, the, the radium dial company, same thing was happening there. The radium dial company uh, started in 1917. Uh, production of painted dials started in 1918. This company, uh, same issues. Uh, the highest point of production around 1920, I think the radial dial company had about 1,000 young women who worked there. They turned about 4,300 dials each day. Uh, they were also kind of known as a luminous process incorporation. Um, and this was after, I think, I want to say they changed their name and I'm not sure it was before or after the, the lawsuits that came about, but they were still in production until 1978, uh, using these radium, uh, created dials. And I'll kind of, uh, you know, as a post note, talk about that. Um, but anyway, in, in New Jersey, so this is going on in Chicago, it's going on in New Jersey. Uh, in New Jersey, the, the abuse started to kind of get out into the newspapers, and this is one of the first stories where newspapers started to kind of really advocate for, uh, you know, industrial workers and plant workers. Uh, there was a plant worker named Grace Fryer, and she decided to sue. It took her two years to actually find a lawyer who would take her case, and then even after she found a lawyer, uh, it, the litigation just took forever. Uh, their first appearance was in court in 1928. Uh, by the time they actually got to court, uh, I think there were a total of five women in this first lawsuit. Two of the women were bedridden, uh, and none of them could raise their arms to take an oath because they were all so sick. Uh, it was five factory workers. So there was Grace Fryer, Edna Hussman, Catherine Schaub, Quintina McDonald, and Albina Larice. Uh, and it was from this uh, court case that this is where they were actually dubbed the Radium Girls. Meanwhile, while this is going on in New Jersey, uh, in Illinois, employees started to actually ask for compensation for their medical and dental bills uh, as early as 1927, but management would not do it. Uh, this kind of continued over the next few years, the demand for money from just sick and dying employees and former employees into the mid-1930s. Uh, in 1937, I'll jump back to the New Jersey case in just a minute, but uh, in 1937, there were actually five women uh, found an attorney in Illinois who would represent them uh, against the Radium Dial Corporation. Uh, by this time, though, Radium Dial had actually closed and moved to New York. Uh, they did retain like a $10,000 deposit left by Radium Dial when it closed, but they couldn't find any insurance to cover the cost of indemnifying the company against employee suits. But eventually they went to court anyway, and they were actually found uh, to win. The company Radium Dial was found liable. Radium Dial, though, uh, hoping to get appeals and verdicts overturned, uh, they kept dragging this thing out, uh, kept going on and on, went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, in 1939, but the court didn't even decide to hear it. Uh, so the lower ruling was upheld. Uh, so these women, at least in Chicago, had won their court case. Unfortunately, though, at least all I could find is that uh, there was only a $10,000, uh, it wasn't even insurance, $10,000 deposit from Radium Dial uh, 
they couldn't find any insurance to really cover the cost of indemnifying the company uh, against employee suits. So I'm, I'm assuming the women, at least in this case, didn't uh, receive much as far as compensation, even though the, you know, the ruling was in their favor. If we go back to New Jersey, though, uh, the case there was actually settled uh, in autumn of 1928. Uh, settlement for these ladies was actually a little bit better. The Radium Girls was at they also received a $10,000 settlement, uh, be about the equivalent of $158,000 uh, today. Uh, they get a $600 a year annuity, uh, which is about $9,500 right now. And they get paid about $12 a week, which is about $200 a week right now, uh, for all their lives while they lived, which for you know a lot of them, they didn't. Uh, they also had all their medical and legal expenses paid by the company. Uh, more importantly, though, what came of this was uh, these companies, you know, they were still allowed to, to produce these watch faces, but they had to provide safety precautions, they had to provide education on radiation, had to provide protective gear, and they no longer shaped their paintbrushes by lips. They had to avoid ingesting or breathing in any kind of the paint. So uh, more importantly, even than that, though, it was huge in the labor rights movement. So uh, occupational disease labor law was kind of brought about because of this, which could find employers uh, employers at fault uh, for purposely putting employees in harm uh, and gave the rights of the, the employee to sue their employers for this. Uh, so pretty important as far as, uh, you know, occupational litigation goes. Um, so these watches, so I was actually looking, you can still find these watches on the internet and buy them. Uh, I personally wouldn't recommend it. Uh, like I said, they were still making these things up until the 1970s. They were pretty expensive, the ones I looked at. Uh, but these radium dials, so they have radium in them, right? So I was looking uh, to see if there was any information available as far as, you know, how much radiation does one of these radium dials put out. And I actually found some. Uh, that radium dials, if uh, they're held near the face, have actually been shown to produce radiation in doses of excess of 10 millisieverts an hour. So if you convert that to rads, it would actually take about 10,000 hours to equal one rad of exposure from these watches. It doesn't really seem like much. That's like a whole year of exposure to equal one, I mean, one rad. But at the same time, you're still being exposed to this radiation if you're wearing one, even if it's a small dose. So... Uh, they might look cool, but we have, you know, obviously today, you know, it, they might be a neat, uh, you know, conversation piece, but I, I don't know. I don't want anything radioactive hanging around me. So, that being said, let's get to our death count. So how many people have actually died from acute radiation syndrome or radiation-related injuries? Uh, really hard to tell. I can't give you a true number. Um... What I'm going to give you, though, it's kind of based on, uh, you know, based on the numbers that I could find. Uh, this estimate includes it's the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan, uh, also the leaks at Chernobyl, Fukushima, other nuclear facilities. There really haven't been a lot in the last 60 years. Um, there have been deaths from it. You know, this also includes the radium girls. Any other anywhere I could find kind of a radiation exposure from an acute radiation illness, I put on here. Obviously, I'm not going to include people who have skin cancer or anything like that. That just doesn't make sense. Uh, but there's Russian submarine leaks, there's laboratory accidents, all that fun stuff. Uh, so, in total, I found about 235,445 people have died from acute radiation syndrome or radiation exposure. 
So if we take our average human at 5 foot 5 inches, we multiply that by our 235,445, we get about 1,275,327 feet, or 241.5 miles. So, if we want to stack our dead, our glowing dead to the moon, which is 238,900 miles away, we'd actually only be able to get about 0.001% of the way there. Not even close. Uh, if you want to reach the top of the Empire State Building, though, at 1,454 feet, we could actually probably reach the top about 877 times. So 877 Empire State Buildings, not bad. Uh, if we want to wrap our dead around the circumference of the Earth at 200, I'm sorry, 24,901 miles, we'd only be able to get about 0.01% uh, of the way around. So not overwhelming numbers, but like I said, this isn't, you know, this isn't a bacteria, it's not a virus, it hasn't been around. I mean, radiation's been around for a while, but we haven't been extracting it as humans and using it, uh, you know, technology and medicine. I do hope, though, that there is more of a swing. Everybody wants a greener everything, greener environment, electric cars, all that fun stuff, that we do take a closer look at nuclear energy. It's clean, it's highly efficient, and it's, it's relatively safe. But uh, there's still a huge stigma with it because you have had these accidents in the past uh, and it has caused damage, but never on a really wide scale. So who knows? We'll see in the future what happens. But uh, thank you all for uh, tuning in. I want to thank all my new listeners. If anybody has suggestions or uh, critiques or just any kind of feedback, I can be reached at youmakemesickpod at gmail.com. Uh, always happy to take requests. Let me know if there's anything that uh, interests you. And I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. And I will talk to you all next time. Remember to wash your hands. Plutonium! Uh, plutonium. Wait a minute. Are you, are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Ah!